Good morning, church. I'm going to ask you to turn in the to John chapter 1. Ryan's already introduced the sermon, so this will make this go a little bit quicker. Um, we are going to be in the prologue to John's gospel today with a sermon entitled The Theology of Christmas. I know that at least uh, this is our last Sunday of Advent before Christmas, and at least for my family, this is an incredibly busy time. I'm sure most of us can relate to that. Um, we, we go to parties, we're busy shopping, we attend family gatherings, we go to see Christmas lights, we watch Christmas movies. It's just a continual sort of buzz and hum of activity as we prepare for and as we enjoy the, the season of Christmas. And there's, there's essentially, um, throughout our culture, there's essentially three perspectives on Christmas, and I'm sure we can all relate to this in some way, and, and we know people that would fall into these categories. Uh, for the secularist, Christmas is basically equals materialism and commercialism and all the shallow silliness that's, that's involved with a secular Christmas. For the traditionalist, they're concerned with Christmas being a, a time of nostalgia, a time of uh, of, of tradition, and we, we do the same thing every year, and we find comfort in that pattern. And then, of course, for the Christian, Christmas is the time that we celebrate the birth of our Savior. And from the Christians, we often hear, and maybe we've said this as well, that we need to keep Christ in Christmas, right? We've heard that, that statement, or that, that Jesus is the reason for the season. And while these statements are certainly true, Without a firm understanding of the profound theology of Christmas, these statements can become as trite and meaningless as the superficiality adopted by the secularists and traditionalists. Without a true understanding of that theology, we'll never grasp the true meaning of Christmas. And of course, when we talk about the true meaning of Christmas, we're talking about our doctrine of the Incarnation. The Incarnation has as its root the Latin term caro, and we know other words that utilize that term. For example, uh, carnivore, a, a meat eater, would utilize the same Latin root of caro. Uh, my, one of my favorite dishes at, at any Mexican restaurant is the carne asada, the roasted meat. Right. So we, uh, when we apply this word to the birth of Christ in the incarnation, what we're literally saying there is the enfleshment of Christ. The, the, the taking on of physical um, properties by the spiritual God. Most of the uh, early church councils that we read about dealt with this very topic, this very um, great mystery, if you will. The councils at Nicaea, Constantinople, Ephesus, and Chalcedon dealt with all these heresies regarding the physical and the divine natures of Christ coming together. Uh, the, the, the heresy of Arianism, which claims that Jesus was actually a created being. The heresy of Apollinarianism, which is a false d division and tearing apart of the two natures of Christ. Sabalianism or modalism would deny the three persons of the Trinity. And then Nestorianism would be a denial of the orthodox teaching of this hypostatic union. When I say hypostatic union, that's just a fancy term that simply means the bringing together of the two vital natures of Christ, the divine nature and the physical nature. So when we pause to examine the, uh, the, the true meaning of Christmas, the incarnation of our Savior, 
what we're actually dealing with here is a very triune concept, a very Trinitarian concept. Uh, as Orthodox believers, we would believe that the Trinity, the triune God, is one being with three persons. Whereas our understanding of Jesus Christ would be he is one person with two natures. So this incarnation of Christ, the producing of the God-man with two distinct natures in one person, is the very doctrine that forms the basis of our theology of Christmas. And that will be our topic for today. That will be our our discussion for today from the the text of John chapter 1. So I'd ask you to turn your attention there. I'm going to read the entire prologue, the first 18 verses of John and then as, as the two parts of our message, we'll camp out in the first five verses of this and in the last five verses as well. So beginning in John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and apart from him nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. I lost verse 6 in my notes. Verse 6 talks about John, correct? Well, John, skipping down to verse 8, was not the light. But John came to testify about the light. Verse 9, There was the true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. And the world did not know him. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as did receive him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Continuing in verse 14, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, And we saw his glory, glory as the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified about him and cried out, saying, This is he of whom I said, He who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. For of his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time, the only begotten God, who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. Let us pray this morning. Father God, as we are gathered for the proclamation of your word, Lord, I am overwhelmed by a sense of my inadequacy to explain and to convey the incredibly profound truth of the incarnation of our Savior. Lord, we are depending on you today. I pray, Lord, that you will guard us from error that you will cause me to decrease as you increase, and that you will make known to your people the truths about the Son of God, about Jesus, about our Lord. We pray this in his name. Amen. So as I said, today's message is going to be divided into two parts. The first part will handle uh, verses 1 through 5 of this prologue, and the second part we will we'll jump to verse 14 and cover verses 14 through 18. The first part we're going to title this morning, The Word Identified. And the second part will be titled, The Word Incarnate. So as we consider the word identified, uh, I, w- I would like to, to just take a step back for just a second and, and, and 
sort of leave you with a little bit of a different way of looking at this passage, a passage that maybe you wouldn't have any reason to think this way because we don't come ourselves from a Jewish context, right? But John very much came out of a Jewish context. Many of the commentators that that write on this passage point to the idea that John was using a technique of interpretation known as a Jewish midrash. And in a Jewish midrash, what this actually involves would be a rabbi. So this is a rabbinical teaching in which a passage from the Pentateuch, the first five books of Scripture, would be interpreted using a passage from either the law, I'm sorry, either the prophets or the poetic writings, okay? And this is the, the technique that many commentators point to as far as this is what John is doing in these first five verses. So the, the, the interpretation goes like this. Essentially, John is proclaiming to you truth from Genesis 1. We notice the, the consistency of the opening of John 1 in the beginning with Genesis 1 in the beginning. And essentially, John is, is combining the truths of Genesis 1 with the truths of Proverbs 8 to demonstrate to other very, uh, very Jewish-thinking people this, this uh, way of interpreting Scripture across the, the different types of writing in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament. So I would like to, to go ahead and ask you, I'm going to throw a lot of Scripture to you today, and I'd like for you to go ahead and turn to a couple of these. We won't turn to every passage, but, but for now, let's turn to Genesis 1. That's a pretty easy one to find. Put your finger there, and also flip over to Proverbs 8. Genesis 1 and Proverbs 8. And, and just to try to get into the mind of John, the writer of our text today, I want us to see if we can read these two passages and, and consider how these two, um, the, the concepts of creation and light in Genesis are going to be paralleled with the preexistence of wisdom and the, and the personification of wisdom in Proverbs 8. And they come together in John's thinking as he's writing this incredible statement of the Logos, of the Word. Okay, so Genesis 1, first five verses, very familiar to us. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and there was evening, and there was morning the first day. Now, very quickly turn to Proverbs 8. And this chapter is creating a personification, if you will, of wisdom. Wisdom is speaking here. This is wisdom, the, the mind and will and purpose of God, speaking through this proverb. We're going to begin in verse 22, Proverbs 8:22, And wisdom says, The Lord possessed me at the beginning of his work, the first of his acts of old. Ages ago I was set up at the first before the beginning of the earth, when there were no depths, I was brought forth. When there were no springs abounding with water. Before the mountains had been shaped, before the hills, I was brought forth. Before he had made the earth with its fields, or the first of the dust of the world. When he established the heavens, I was there. When he drew a circle on the face of the deep. When he made firm the skies above, when he established the fountains of the deep. When he assigned to the sea its limit, so that the waters might not transgress his command. When he marked out the foundations of the earth, then I was beside him 
hear this, like a master workman. And I was daily his delight, rejoicing before him always, rejoicing in his inhabited world, and delighting in the children of man. So in these two passages, one from Genesis, one from Proverbs, uh, our, our commentators tell us that both of these realities were in the mind of God. The, 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 the pure reality of God as creator and also the foundational reality of the pre-existing uh, elements of wisdom and mind and will and purpose of God that ran in eternity past before creation ever came to be. And these two ideas of creation and mind, will, purpose unite, uh, our commentators tell us, in the writing of John 1. So with, with these two things in our mind, let's turn our attention back to John chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. So the question must be asked, why, and I've thought this before, why is Jesus, uh, Jesus Christ referred to as the Word? For most of us, our, our English translations will include a capital W on Word, helping us recognize that this Word is speaking of Jesus Christ himself. But why is he called the, the Word, in, in Greek, the Logos? Well, it's important to recognize that uh, sometimes things are lost in translation. Um, when we use the term in English, W-O-R-D, Word, we're generally speaking of a simple uh, literary construction that would convey thought or meaning. So it, it's, it's a word. Uh, and the word D-O-G, dog, has a, a representation of an animal with four legs and ears, right? Most of them. Uh, there, I've seen some three-legged dogs, but generally speaking, we, we understand D-O-G is representing a thought or an idea. Um, but in Greek, the term logos is, is far broader than that. It's not merely a literary construction, but, but it's actually used to, to express a much bigger concept um, of transfer of information, of a, of a conveying of will, of, of a demonstration of purpose. And, and that's, that's, I think, how we need to look at this term logos as we're considering John chapter 1. And, of course, anything that is proclaimed to be the word of the Lord should be understood as an actual demonstration of the mind, will, and purpose of God. In light of God's sovereignty and supreme power, then, this elevates the Logos, his word, to a level of unrivaled authority. And then we have to understand that John would be using this term very intentionally, and he would be using it in light of his understanding of the Greek term Logos, and how that would actually be pointing back to um, realities in the Hebrew Scriptures. Now, some of you are probably thinking, wait a minute, I thought we are talking about Greek. Now you're referencing Hebrew. Well, th that, that's a good question. How, how do we know what this Greek term would mean from the Hebrew Scriptures? And the answer to that is that we have to trace this term through the Septuagint. Okay, the Septuagint was the, uh, the Greek translation of the ancient Hebrew Scriptures. And when we look at that, we can see how this term logos would point back to truths held within the Hebrew Scriptures. The Septuagint would be the translation that was very often referred to by Jesus, by the apostles, because they lived in a Greek-speaking culture and society. So when we look to the logos in the Septuagint, we can, we can see some of the ideas that were running through the mind of John as he was identifying Christ 
as the Logos. For example, uh, the Logos of the Lord, the Word of the Lord creates. Psalm 33, verse 6, By the Word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of His mouth all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the earth stand in awe of him. For he spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. So we see in Psalms here that the logos is the the logos of the Lord is, is creating. The logos is creating. The word of the Lord is creating. Also, we see that the Logos of the Lord, the Word of the Lord, provides revelation to His people. Jeremiah chapter 1, the words of Jeremiah, the son of Hilkiah, one of the priests who were in Anathoth in the land of Benjamin, to whom the Word, again, this is an exact translation, the Logos of the Lord, came in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, in the 13th year of his reign. So in this passage, we see that the Lord, uh, the Logos of the Lord is providing revelation. It's enlightening to the person of of God. The Logos of the Lord also saves, as we see in Psalm 107, where we read, Some were fools through their sinful ways, and because of their iniquities suffered affliction. They loathed any kind of food. They drew near to the gates of death. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He sent out his word, again his Logos, and healed them and delivered them from their destruction. So all of these passages would point to the, the fact that, that John, the writer of, this, of our text today, would recognize the term logos to be referring to the means by which God creates, the manner in which God reveals his will to his people, and the method by which God ultimately redeems and delivers sinful man. With that in mind, we can confidently say that this personification of the term logos in the Gospel of John can only be in reference to the second person of the Trinity. The logos can rightly be understood as God's very own self-revelation to man. And this logos surpasses even God's revelation to the prophets. The written word is, is, is even pointing to this living word that we're talking about today, the Lord of glory, the great I am, Emmanuel, God is with us. That's the, that's the one that we're talking about as we look at the word of the Lord. Now, there's another, uh, there's another word that we need to look uh, specifically at in these first two verses, and I promise I'm not going to take this much time on every verse, but this is very important to lay the foundation. And, and the, that important word that I like to turn your attention to is the word was. In the beginning was the word of God. In the beginning was. Now, in our, in our English-speaking culture, we don't often think uh, deeply about verb tenses, right? We, we think very, fairly generally we've got past tense, we've got present tense, we've got future tense. But as you look at the Greek grammar, uh, it's such an inflected language. There's so much to be understood from the tenses of the verbs. And I'd like to call your attention to the fact that in this case, every time was is used, it's used in what's known as the imperfect tense of the verb. In other words, this is an action that is in a state of perpetually continuing uh, action. It's, it's not an action that is completed. It's not an action that is initiated and then stopped. It is an ongoing action in the past through to the present. So what we see when we read that in the beginning was the Word of God, we're seeing that the Word was in a perpetual state of continuation from the very beginning. 
And this is simply a way of indicating the eternality of the Logos, the eternality of the Word. If we're applying this to Jesus Christ, then we can say that Jesus Christ pre-existed creation. He was not the first creation. He pre-existed creation. He was in a state of continued being in this imperfect tense of the word ami in, in, in Greek, actually. And this is very important when we're responding to the Aryan cults. For example, our, our, we, we probably have Mormon friends or Jehovah's Witness friends that b- actually believe, um, as did some of the early church um, heretics, that uh, Jesus was a created being. And, and they'll, they'll turn to certain passages and try to prove that out. But it really falls short because we, we can recognize, particularly in John, but in other places as well, that Jesus Christ never started to exist. He always existed and is eternally existent with the Father. The phrase logos then, uh, the logos was with God and the logos was God, has some very strong Trinitarian uh, implications for us. For example, if I, if I look over in, and I see James and Allison, and I say, uh, for example, James is with Allison. Okay, I think that necessitates the concept that there are two persons over there, James and Allison. In the same way, when we see that the word, the logos, was with God, we have a plurality uh, in our understanding of the persons within the Godhead. But then immediately following that, we see not only was the word with God, we see that the word was God. And in this case, we see a singularity of being and essence. So, so John is really laying the foundation for this idea that within the Godhead, we have three persons all sharing one same essence. And that's a mystery to us because if, if we see a person who is one, one being who is exhibiting multiple persons, we take them to an insane asylum. That's, that's not a normal thing for a created person to have multiple persons, a created thing to have multiple persons, right? But in the Godhead, it is, it is absolutely necessary to understand what John is talking about here. We see two of these persons uh, in the Father and the Son in this, in this first chapter of John. Well, continuing to verse 3, we note uh, the creative aspect of, uh, of this word. Uh, all things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Now, that, that's kind of a, a roundabout way of saying that, but I think John is trying to make it clear. Anything that you can think of was brought about through the person of Jesus Christ. Nothing was brought about without him. He was the active agent of creation. This passage actually rings very familiar as we consider Paul's letter to the Colossians. Colossians 1 verse 15 tells us, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. I think it's very important for us to recognize as we consider the incarnation of Christ that there is a strong connection between Christ as creator and Christ as redeemer. And I want to continue to flesh that out as we go through our passage today. 1 Corinthians 8, 6. This is one I'd like for you to turn to. Please turn to 1 Corinthians 8 and verse 6. As we consider this connection between the creative reality of Christ and his work as our redeemer. 
1 Corinthians 8, 6 reads, Yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Now just, just kind of hold that in your mind for a second. All things, all things, everything is from God and through Christ. And we exist for what purpose? For God, again, through Christ. We're reminded in, in, this, in, this, uh, in this passage from 1 Corinthians of the eternal covenant of redemption between God the Father and God the Son. We, we recognize that there was always, even prior to creation, there was an agreement between God the Father and God the Son to redeem a people for his glory. And we recognize that our Savior, uh, when we recognize that our Savior was also active in our creation, we start to see the parallels between our first birth and our rebirth spiritually unto salvation. So in the same way that a supernatural act of creation was required to bring about our physical existence, a supernatural act of spiritual recreation is required for our redemption. Another passage that I'd like you to turn to as we examine some of the phrases is John chapter 3. John chapter 3 and verse 3. Just a few pages over. You'll remember that this is a a passage in which Nicodemus has come to Jesus at night um, because he was afraid to do so in the daylight. And he's telling him, Jesus, we we know that that you are a, a prophet, that you are a teacher because of the works and the mighty miracles that you do. Jesus' response to him was a little bit shocking and a little bit jarring to him. Jesus answered, John 3, verse 3, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Again, Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. So again, I'd just like to point out that the the power to create life is an absolute imperative for our salvation. Because at the point of our conversion, that is exactly what's happening. It is a recreation of someone who is not just um, affected by sin, not just stained by sin, but someone who is dead in sin. An act of regeneration, an act of redemption, is an act of creation. And John is drawing this parallel throughout his his prologue, but also throughout the book of John, that salvation is a creative act and can only be accomplished by one who can create. And that's why we labor this point of Christ being an active agent in creation. Well, continuing in verse 4 of John chapter 1. In him was life... And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. In this section of the text, we begin to see this this idea of the logos, the word, as being life and light. These, These themes of life and light are prominent in John's writing, not just in the gospel, but also in his epistles. And I'd like to see us... 
uh, go ahead and I'm, I know I'm having you jump around a lot, but if you will turn with me again, this is First John, the epistle First John. We're going to go to the first verse, and we see in these first seven verses of this epistle the logos uh, that, that we've identified as Jesus Christ as life and as light. So First John chapter one verse four reads. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, get this, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Now understand, these first four verses of the first epistle of John are written really as a call of the gospel. They're proclaiming the truth of the resurrected Lord here in, in this throughout this book. But where, where John begins is that the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us, this, this very word of God um, that he connects from the beginning was life. It's the word of God that gives life. It's also the word of God that's identified as light. And as we look and continue in, in 1 John chapter 1, verse 5, we see this is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, uh, sorry, if we walk, I've lost my place here, sorry, sorry, here we go. I won't, I won't teach from the iPad again, it's too much trouble, okay. Uh, if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. This is the important part. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Okay, so again, we're seeing both of these components from the gospel of John, the light and the life. And he's expounding upon that in his message of hope and salvation in his epistle. Now, as we, as we look back to John, uh, John 1, verse 5, um, I'm going to point out a, a translation issue that, that might throw some confusion for some of us. It's in verse 5. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Now, some of your uh, translations might read, the darkness did not overcome it. And, and the word that's in question here is the Greek word katalambano. And it takes on different meanings depending on the, the, the context. And for our context, I think there are two possible renderings, hence the two different translations that you might be looking at. Um, when, when we look at this word katalambano, physically speaking, it can mean to overtake or to seize someone. So when, when my son starts to run across the parking lot, I katalambano him. I seize him. I, I grab him to prevent him. So that, that would be, if, if your translation reads overcome, that would be that type of, of rendering of this. Um, mentally speaking, this word can also reference an intellectual apprehension of something. So just as you can apprehend someone physically, you can also apprehend things intellectually or mentally. I prefer that translation that, that reads comprehend. But either way, translation issues aside, the darkness will never conquer the light. 
and apart from the illumination of the Holy Spirit, no one will ever comprehend the light that is Christ. So we have two true statements, um, regardless of how your English translation renders that. Also, we see this uh, in, in Isaiah 9. He, uh, Isaiah, in his prophecy, seems to cover both bases as well. Uh, Isaiah 9, 2, we read, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. This is prophesying the coming Messiah as light. Then in verse 6 of Isaiah 9, the famous passage from Messiah, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. In this passage, we see uh, Jesus as one who will never be overcome one who will never be conquered. He is the conquering king of glory. Well, that's part one of our sermon. I promise part two will be much quicker. But having laid the foundation of the logos as the, as the word, identifying the logos as the word, which is Christ, through whom everything that we see was created, um, for whom uh, God has promised a people in the covenant of redemption, we look to the logos incarnate. The Logos incarnate, becoming flesh. Let's pick up our reading in John 1, uh, verse 14. We read there, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified about him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. Now, in in this part of Scripture, in this passage, John the Apostle is quoting John the Baptist and reasserting the preexistence of Christ. It's important for us to consider this, that the Word was God in the imperfect continuing sense of uh, tense of that Greek verb, the ongoing eternal nature of, of Christ. But he became flesh. So there's a difference here that I like to draw between being and becoming. Okay, Christ was eternally in a state of being. The second person of the Trinity never began to be. However, he did become flesh. And because of this, we can affirm with the Nicene Creed that the Lord Jesus Christ is the only Son of God, begotten from the Father, before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten not made. Okay, and I like to make that distinction. A lot of times we think of the word begotten as uh, being born, essentially. And in some sense, uh, that, that is true. That, that's the only sense in which you or I can ever be begotten is by being born. But when we consider the eternal nature of Christ, we recognize that for him to be begotten is not to be born because his existence predates his incarnation. And that's the, that's the whole point of this theology of, 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 of Christmas message. Consider the implications of this, too. Um, I think a lot of times we start to yawn over these deep theological concepts because we're, we sort of get sort of numb to this, this trope of, yes, uh, Jesus was God. Yes, we believe that. We affirm that. And we can say it again and again, and we should say it again and again. But we should never lose the, the, the wonder and the mystery and, and the amazement at the fact that God, transcendent God, condescended to walk among his creation. 
Not in the way he walked with Adam and Eve in the garden before the fall. Because things changed. The dynamics changed after the fall. And the incarnation of Christ was one that took the transcendent God. It's nearly incomprehensible for us to recognize that or even understand that. How this God who is completely separate from his creation in terms of power and might and righteousness and holiness. But he is completely inserting himself into his creation in the person of Jesus Christ. Uh, This is why we call that the condescension. If, if, some, if, we, if we condescend, that means we lower, we bring down. And this perfectly holy, righteous God allowed himself to set aside that level of glory for a time to embrace the reality of a fleshly existence, an enfleshment, if you will. And it's only our Trinitarian understanding of God that can account for this. An incredible, an incredible reality. Continuing in verse 16. For of his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. Now I want to look for just a second at this phrase, grace upon grace. Literally speaking, this grace upon grace means grace in place of grace or grace coming out of grace, grace flowing from grace. And we receive clarity in verse 17 for what this actually means. The first grace is the law of Moses, okay, given to the people of Israel, through which they were made aware of the righteousness of God, and through which all the nations were blessed because the Messiah came from Israel. But at the moment in time, when Jesus Christ stepped into time and space, this grace gave way to an even greater grace. The written word pointed to the living word. And this is what I want us to just be amazed by today is the, the infinite grace that flows out of the incarnation of Christ. Grace upon grace. For God to give the law to Moses and, and to his people was in fact a gracious act. But the, the, the greatness of that gracious act is really seen in the ultimate fulfillment of the law in the person of Jesus Christ. We also see in verse 18 that the Logos incarnate is the only perfect revelation of God. So we recognize that, that as, as gracious as the giving of the law was, no one was ever saved by the sacrificing of, law and, of, of, of goats and bulls. Right? It was only through the perfect sacrifice of Christ. And we read about this in Hebrews, a passage that we're all very familiar with. We've heard probably dozens of times um, since we've, we've taught Hebrews recently. Hebrews 1, Long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. An incredible thought that the transcendent God of glory would step into time and space, enrobing himself in flesh in the person of Jesus Christ, that he may redeem for himself a people to his glory. So as we consider this passage today, we've gone to great lengths to identify the Logos in John 1 as the second person of the Trinity. 
We've also established that the incarnation of this Logos is the God-man. It's Jesus Christ, um, our Emmanuel. The question then that we have to ask as we consider this is, why the incarnation? We've talked about what the incarnation is. We've talked about who was incarnate. But the question needs to be asked, why would God the Son temporarily lay aside his glory and inhabit human flesh? Did he walk on earth in order that he might heal the sick and raise the dead? To that we must answer no, because he's done those things through other men. Did he simply desire and have a need for relationship with mankind? Again, the answer to that is no, because God is entirely fulfilled and sustained within the Trinity. Neither man nor any other part of creation provides any completion to the nature and character of God. So why the Incarnation? I think the answer comes down to this. The Word became flesh because that is what was required as a fulfillment of the eternal covenant of redemption between the Father and the Son. There was no one qualified to step into time and space and provide um, redemption, to provide that perfect sacrifice, to completely fulfill the law. No one else was qualified to do that except for God himself in the person of Christ. The fall of man created an infinite discrepancy between the righteousness of God and the sinfulness of man. And it was only Christ who could bridge that gap. So as we consider this year around Christmas time, the fact that everyone loves Christmas, the secularist, the traditionalist, the believer alike, we all enjoy Christmas. I don't think we truly understand the the truth of Christmas, the real meaning of Christmas, until we place it in the light of the offense of the gospel. This means that for the secularists, they cannot be allowed to continue to revel in the stupidity of a commercialized holiday that celebrates a fat dude in a red suit riding a sleigh with reindeer. This also means for the traditionalist, they cannot be allowed to simply wallow in the sappy, sentimental nostalgia of tradition. The theology of Christmas dictates that we all come face to face with the reality of the incarnation, what was going on there. So this year as we read the Christmas story, I'm I'm sure we all will, will do that as we gather with family, as we read the account of the first Christmas in Bethlehem, let's not allow ourselves to get lulled into just hearing another familiar story one more time um, from our, uh, our Bible reading. But instead, let's consider deeply how this birth was vital to the rebirth that redeems the souls of men. It's the incarnation that takes us to Calvary. It's the incarnation that produces a sacrifice that bridges that immeasurable gap between sinful man and holy God. It's that incarnation of the Word, the second person of the Trinity, that allows for any hope for us. Uh, We're we're people of hope and goodwill around this time of year. Our hope cannot be found outside of, of the realization that this baby born in a manger, that little body, is the same body that we're going to memorialize in the Lord's Supper today as we consider uh, the death of Jesus Christ. We can never disassociate those realities. And I think our understanding and our appreciation and our, our, our marveling at the birth of Christ becomes even greater when we think of it in this context. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for the truths that are contained in your word. 
We are thankful, Lord, for our knowledge of Christ, that he was, in fact, eternally existent, that he was an active agent in creation, and, Lord, he is the sole source of our recreation as believers in you. God, I pray that, uh, that, that you will take these, these ideas and hold them fast in our minds, that as we celebrate this Christmas season, we would be continually reminded that the birth of Christ was all about the death of Christ, that our salvation, our, our, our very existence in your presence uh, is, is determined by this, this baby that we celebrate on Christmas Day. Father, it is right that we celebrate and we praise you in the birth of your Son. We praise you even more, Father, in the atonement that he provided, and we glorify you in these things. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Now is uh, hymn 88 that you can turn to if you'd like. The words will be on the screen. But all of these concepts, or a lot of them that, that Adam has uh, spoken this morning, come out in this hymn or this uh, carol, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. So let's stand together as we sing. Bye. 